0: buddy. morning y'all good to see you uh, my name is Luke I'm one of the pastors here and uh, man Seth was right there are a lot you're, there's a lot of you here today thanks for coming Um you know, I, as a preacher, you can imagine I like listening to sermons, and uh, the hardest ones to listen to are myself, because you hear yourself, watch yourself, that always feels weird, but, but uh, listening to other sermons has always been something I've grown from and, uh, and enjoyed, but there's one particular kind of sermon that I will always listen to, uh, whether it's someone I know or not, whether it's a uh, well-known or famous pastor or just kind of an ordinary one that no one's ever heard of, uh, like most of us, um, there's one kind of sermon I will listen to every single time and that is a farewell sermon from time to time you'll hear somebody who is wrapping up their ministry maybe they're retiring or maybe they're moving on to a new assignment or they've something like that but they've been in a church and doing ministry and shepherding a group of people for a significant period of time and it comes time where for whatever reason they're moving on and they have kind of one last chance to say farewell and to issue a charge. This happened uh, just the other day. I was listening to um, a sermon by the, the pastor of my uh, sister-in-law who goes to church at a church in Ohio. And the, the church she's at, the pastor is retiring after 20 plus years of, of doing ministry there. And so I've never ever listened to a sermon by him before. But I want to listen to the last one. Because it feels to me like, gosh, if you just had one chance to say Here's what I hope you'll remember as I go. I I wanna hear whatever that is. And so that's a sermon I'll listen to every time. Now, today's not a farewell sermon. (laughs) God willing, I mean, I don't think so. But what we're looking at here today in Acts chapter 20 is a farewell kind of sermon. It's the Apostle Paul who has built significant relationship with these elders in Ephesus, and he's saying goodbye. It's a tearful farewell. He's issuing a charge to them about how to stay faithful as he continues on and won't see them again. Now, what makes this especially interesting in the book of Acts is that all the speeches recorded in the book of Acts are recorded to non-Christians. Right? Peter preaches to non-Christians and Stephen preaches to non-Christians and Paul preaches to non-Christians. And all the kind of messages where you hear what they said are to non-Christians. But this is the only one in Acts where uh, somebody wrote down, Luke wrote down what Paul said to Christians. And so in a sense, even though he's talking just to the Ephesian elders in this passage, just to leaders in the church, there's a sense in which he's talking to every church that would ever come after and say, this is what it looks like to be healthy. This is what it looks like to pursue God. This is what it looks like to pursue the mission of God, even after the apostles are gone. And so that's what we're going to look at here today. Now, just to kind of set it in context, uh, Paul has been in Ephesus for a number of years, a couple years now, and we saw it last week in Acts 19, that because of how many people were rejecting idolatry and turning to Jesus, the, the culture was actually shaping in Ephesus. No one set out to change the culture. They just wanted to be obedient. And as they did, the kind of idol business in Ephesus, the people making you know, the, the silver idols that people would buy and keep in their homes, that business started to dry up, so much so that a riot kind of broke out and it got a little bit crazy. And then that kind of winds down and that, that's where we pick up in the beginning of chapter 20. If you have your Bible, chapter 20, verse one, it says, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said, farewell and departed for Macedonia. And so the next few verses, Paul is traveling through Macedonia, kind of goes across from Turkey over to Greece, and he's traveling back and he's visiting a number of the churches that he helped start. And the the purpose is kind of twofold. He's there to encourage them, probably to say the kinds of things that we're gonna read him say to the Ephesian elders. He's also there to... To collect money. He's been on a collection journey. The church in Jerusalem has some challenges, and so he's collecting that money to be able to take back to the church in Jerusalem. So he's traveled around for a couple months. Um, He's, uh, you know, stopping along the way. Luke records a really interesting story in verses 7 uh, to 16, where Paul is preaching, and it's so late at night, and there's the lamps, there's all these gas lamps in the the room, so the oxygen level's like going down. (laughs) And the little kid uh, falls asleep around midnight as Paul keeps talking, right? And you go, Paul killed this guy with his teaching because what happens is this little boy falls asleep and actually falls out of a third story window and falls dead. And Paul goes down and actually raises him from the dead. The boy's name is Eutychus. Uh, There's actually a preaching book, book for preachers called Saving Eutychus, How to Preach Without People Falling Asleep. (laughs) Which I think is kind of funny. I just realized people are tired sometimes. It's just when my mom falls asleep listening to me preach, that's when it's like, man, (laughs) that wasn't my best today, I guess. but uh, that's but just this amazing thing. Paul goes down and he raises this little boy from the dead. And the whole point of that is, again, just to authenticate Paul's ministry. Just like Jesus, just like Elijah, these other key figures that God was blessing and working through, Paul is also working through and blessing, or God's also working through and blessing Paul. So he uh, continues his travels. He decides actually to not stop in Ephesus. We don't know why. We're not exactly sure we could guess. But he goes a little bit past Ephesus, about 30 miles. And then it says this in verse 17. Now, from Miletus, again, this is this town about 30 miles from Ephesus. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So he doesn't stop in Ephesus. He goes past it, sends a messenger. And so I just imagine you're one of the elders in Ephesus and you're at home minding your own business. Knocking on the door. Hello? Uh, Yeah, um, I'm here to uh, get you because... Paul needs to talk to you. He's in Miletus and he needs to see you and the other elders. And uh, this is pretty important. Can you come? And you go, Yeah. Yeah, I'll come. And you're, you tell your wife, You go, honey, I, I, I got to go. And uh, you, you, you go, I, I got to get down there. I got to see him. I don't know exactly what's going on. I don't know exactly what this is, but I. Paul means the world to me. I gotta, I gotta go hear from him. And so your wife starts packing you up some hummus and some pitas and, you know, into a little satchel and she gets that together and, and you go over to the other elders' houses and you, you kind of gather together and you form this little entourage and you start traveling probably a day, maybe two days that it would have taken you to kind of walk those 30 miles to be able to see Paul and you get there and you don't totally know what to expect. It's this... Highly emotional scene. Paul pours out his heart. He tells you he's never going to see you again. You kind of see how the scene concludes. Look at verse 36. And when he had said all these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. They walk him to the boat. It takes off and they head home. Probably a little slower than they came down. Definitely heavier hearts. They didn't know what to expect probably but on the way back, they. They know what's happened and they feel the weight, not just that they're not gonna see Paul, but the weight of everything that he told them. And I just imagine that one of these elders gets home and his wife who you know, had to prepare all that stuff really quick to help him and has been praying for him over these days and, and uh, people in the church are kind of asking this elder's wife, hey, is everything okay? What's going on there? And so he walks into the house and she says, honey, what happened? How did, how did it go? What, what did he say? I just imagine, what would the elder say at that moment? What would he do? What would he, he'd probably say, well, we're not going to see him again. And that's the main thing on my mind is I'm just going to miss him. And I I love Paul and I'm going to miss him. And they'd keep talking and she would say, well, what did he say? I mean, surely whatever he said to you must've been really important. And what I want to do here this morning is to try to say what I think that elder might've said to his wife because the elder wouldn't have had the ability to recall every exact thing that Paul said, right? He probably didn't have like a tape recorder to hear it. But as they would have talked about it on the way home, perhaps this elder would have been able to kind of summarize and go, you know what? If I boil it down, here's kind of what Paul's farewell was. And so that's what we're gonna see today. And I think the first thing that this elder would have told his wife is he would have said, honey, Paul encouraged us to remember the precious price of the church. Paul wanted us to remember in his absence the precious price of the church. The the church is precious, the church is valuable to Jesus and therefore it should be to us. Now, we all know this, that if you pay a lot for something, you value it more, right? And some of you try to kind of teach to your kids, right? They don't necessarily know what things cost, they don't know how much you paid. they don't know that. But you you know that when you pay more for something, you tend to value it more. I, I had this experience a few years ago at Cedar Point. Any of you ever been to Cedar Point? In Ohio, oh man, it's incredible. It's like the best roller coaster park probably in North America. It's absolutely amazing. And a number of years ago, I was there and I, and I took our family and um, it was the first time that I'd gone to a place like that, Cedar Point or uh, Disneyland or a number of places where I had to pay for it. Every other time I'd been on scholarship, you know, from my parents or my wife's parents or something like that. And so, I mean, that's, that's pretty cool to be able to go that long in life and never have paid for it. But I, I you know, a couple years ago, I was like, okay, I now paid, you know, a lot of money, triple digits to like get these tickets and do this. And it's amazing when you've paid the money, how much more you care that everyone likes it, right? You're walking around the whole time. You're like, are you having fun? Are you having fun? You better be having fun. <laughs> Right? And by the end of the day, you're so tired you like forget how much fun you're having. You know, but like you just you care more because this I paid a lot for this. This matters to me. Listen, Jesus paid a lot for his church. That's kind of the centerpiece, maybe, even of what Paul says. Look at verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul says, take care of the church because Jesus obtained it with his own blood. He bought it with his own blood. He purchased the church with his blood. How precious is the blood of Jesus. Infinitely precious. So if we value the things that are costly, if we value the things that are expensive, we must value the church. Now now listen, the church, when you hear that, a lot of times you think of a building or you think of a place, hey, I'm gonna go to church. But the reality is that the church is a people who, not a place where. And that gets kind of mixed up because we use the word both ways. Uh, but but fundamentally, the church is a people who, not a place, where Jesus obtained the church of God with His own blood. Which means, I think this elder would have said to his wife, "Honey, we have to love the church." We have to care about the people of God. We can't ever get to the point where we just think it's just me and God, it's just us and God and forget about the church. We have to love the church because the church is precious and Jesus paid a heavy price for it. This is common today. You'll hear people who go, you know what? I I love the church and I I like, or I I love Jesus and and I read the Bible, but I don't really like the church. And usually if you knew their story, you'd understand why they say that, right? Like they've been burned by it. They've been hurt. They've been, in some cases, even abused, spiritually speaking. And, and so I, I understand the, where that comes from and how you get there. But, but think about it in light of Scripture. Scripture says the church is precious. Jesus obtained it with his own blood. You can't say I love Jesus, but I don't care about the church. Right? This would be like, right, like Greg, we're we're friends. Right? Imagine I came to you and I said, uh, Greg, you know, man, I really like you. I like hanging out with you. We have a good time. But I I don't really ever want to be with Suzanne ever again. Because <laughs> she's the worst. <laughs> like, I mean, terrible. I like you. I just hate her. Right? which I don't feel like that, Suzanne, you're great. But imagine if I was, right? Like Greg would be like probably ready to fight me. Like and some of you I know would be like, I know my wife's the worst, right? Like, but, but I know Greg would not feel like that. He'd be upset. He'd be loyal. He'd say, hey, you can't, even if he thought, yeah, she is kind of the worst, he'd still defend her, right? Because she's my wife. I paid a heavy price for her. <laughs> right? Imagine going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I love you. Oh, Jesus, you're the best. Oh, Jesus, I, I you mean everything to me, but I hate your wife. Oh, I don't think that would go well. So I think this elder would walk away from this whole experience, this farewell message from Paul and say, we got to love the church. We got to remember the precious price of the church. Second thing I think that the this elder would tell his wife as he'd say, honey, I, I'm really feeling the gravity of godly leadership. I'm feeling the gravity of godly leadership because if this church is precious to God and I'm called to be an elder, a leader in this church, then I feel the weight of that. I feel the gravity of that. I have a role in stewarding the health and the flourishing of this bride that is so precious to Jesus. That's a weighty thing. I think he would say, I feel the gravity of godly leadership leadership. There's a lot at stake when you read this passage. When you read this passage, you see uh, the danger that is imminent that Paul seems to talk about. Right after he talks about Jesus obtaining the church with his own blood in verse 28, the very next verse, look at it, verse 29 says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Notice, Paul doesn't say, I think that after my departure, fierce wolves could come in, might come in. This is possible. No, no. He says, I know this. Here's what I know for sure, Paul says. Fierce wolves are coming. People who are seeking to destroy the church. People who are seeking to devour the people of God. And in fact, for those of you who, who have such struggle with the church, it's probably because you've been devoured by some wolves. And this is a constant and continual threat. There is lots of at stake. Now we know that not only is there a lot at stake in the church in particular, but this is how all of life is, right? All of, leader, all of life is impacted by leadership, right? The, a home, the home that you live in, that you were raised in, was impacted by leadership. All the teachers that we just prayed for, we prayed for you because we know what a significant role of leadership you have in those, home, in those schools, You could go to your office. You could go to your kid's sports team. You could go all over the place. You could go to uh, county and local government. You could go as high as the White House and the Senate and the Congress. This is why we should be praying for these people because so much rides on leadership. This is why as a church, we're actually starting a new thing. I'm starting a new thing. You're, in, you're invited to it. I'll tell you the deadline to sign up for it's tomorrow, but would love to have you be part of it. It's called The Greenhouse, and it's a once-a-month thing that I'll be leading. It's available to anybody uh, that wants to be part of it, where at once a month we'll look at some aspect of leadership in all areas of life. So not just church leadership, not just ministry stuff, but leadership in all areas of life, because I think it's so important that we have good godly leadership. There's information about that in your program if you want to check that out. So there's a gravity, there's a weight to godly leadership, there's threats coming against the church, and these elders in particular are called to, to fight those threats. Now godly leadership, we, we see in this passage, we see it involves three things. And, and I know that some of you right now are going, well gosh, I'm not a leader. Or I'm a leader in, at home, but I'm not a leader at church or I'm a leader at work but I'm not a leader at at church and that's fine that's okay I think you'll still see some transferable leadership principles here but uh, the other thing I hope this will do is help you to pray for the leaders in the church right this is I I feel this significant weight our elders this week we had an elder meeting and we spent extended time just reflecting on this whole passage about what does this say what is God calling us to as leaders in the church so this gives you some ways to to pray for us But this godly leadership involves, in this passage, at least three things. The first one is integrity. It's integrity. Do you know where we get the word integrity? The word integrity comes from a math word, integer. Integer. It means whole or complete. It's not a decimal. There's not a fraction to it. It's whole. It's Complete, it's an integer, that's where we get integrity. A life of integrity is a life that's whole, a life that's seamless, a life that is what it looks like. It's not phony, it's not fake, it's not disingenuous, it's integrity, it's, it's whole, it's complete. One of my favorite examples of, of kind of this idea comes from actually the architect who's helping design our, our future building, the Bartlett architects, they're just tremendous and uh and we've had really interesting conversations because we uh you know the first part of the whole process is talking through your values as an organization as a church and you get so into it that you kind of after a while are like why are we talking about this what does this like here's how much money we have here's how much space we'd like like what difference and and what it is is he says i want to build a space that communicates your values. I wanna build something that has integrity. Because one of the things that irks him, he tells me this, and I, I love asking him about this stuff, but he says, one of the things that drives me crazy is like, I'll go into a coffee shop and they'll have their values on the wall. Here's the thing we believe in, here's the things we value. And one of the values in a certain coffee shop might be authenticity. He says, so I'm standing there in this place that says, we'll die for authenticity, but I'm standing on fake wood floors not authentic. That's not integrity. And he goes, I, I, I wanna have integrity. If, if something looks like this, if, if you say you value authenticity, if it looks like this, it should be this because that's got integrity. Now I'm not trying to critique those of you who have fake grass or <laughs> anything in your yard, um, but we're not gonna have fake grass on, on that. And that's because we've said, hey, we value, we value authenticity. So we're gonna have grass be grass. And, Concrete be concrete and wood be wood and those sorts of things. And, and, and that's just an example of integrity. It's a wholeness. It's a seamlessness. It is what it looks like. Now, you see this in the Apostle Paul through a few different places. All throughout this, you see Paul appealing to what they know of, of him. He, look at this in verse 18. And they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. He says, you know how I've been, right? You remember that? You know how I've conducted myself. You know the obstacles and the difficulties and the sufferings I faced. You know that, right? Remember that. He says this in verse uh, 31, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. He concludes this way too, verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul over and over is saying, you know this, you remember this, you know how I've conducted myself. Why does he do that? He's appealing to his integrity. Now it strikes us as like, gosh, is he bragging? What is he doing? No, what he's saying is, hey, you've held me up to the light for the last two years. You know what I've been like. This has really challenged me and challenged our elders this week to go, could we say, you know how we've conducted ourselves? Right? Because that's kind of a risky thing to say. Right? If Paul goes, you know how we've been, and people go, uh, yeah, we do. <laughs> and it's not good. That lacks integrity. So Paul appeals to, to that. But, but he also says this, look at verse 28. This is fascinating. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's an amazing exhortation. That's an amazing command. Paul says, listen, before you care about the flock, before you go protecting from all the wolves, pay attention first to yourselves because what matters in leadership is integrity. You can have all the great systems and all the great organization and all the great vision and all the great stuff, but if you don't have integrity, you don't have leadership. So Paul says, pay attention to yourselves. See, the biggest threats, we've seen this throughout the book of Acts, the biggest threats in the book of Acts, they aren't all the persecution and all the attacks from outside. The biggest threats, the most corrupting and destructive threats in the book of Acts, they come from within. It's uh, Ananias and Sapphira lying about what they did with their money from the land they sold. It's, it's the fighting between Jew and Gentile over who's going to get bread in Acts chapter 6. It's the, it's the Judaizers saying, no, no, grace isn't enough. You have to also be circumcised. It's, it's all these internal squabbles that threaten the church. And so Paul says, listen, we need integrity. And it starts with the leaders watching themselves, paying attention to themselves. So godly leadership involves integrity. It also involves courage. Again, these are things you can be praying for me and praying for our pastors and our elders that we'd have integrity, also that we'd have courage. Twice, Paul says almost the exact same thing. Look at verse 20. He says, you know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Look at verse 27. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul apparently knows that in leadership, there is this tendency to just want to keep people happy, to to want to please people, to want to scratch ears, to want to give people kind of what they want more than what they need. But Paul says, I didn't do that. I did not shrink back from declaring to you what was profitable. I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. There are things about the gospel that are so good and so sweet, and they taste like candy, and there are things about the gospel that confront you and challenge you. And I taught them both. That takes courage. The greatest issue in most leaders' lives, one of my mentors tells me, The greatest issue in most leaders' lives is not knowledge, but courage. A lot of times leaders know what to do. They know the right thing. This is why I pray all the time. Lord, give me the wisdom to know what's right, and give me the courage to do it, no matter what it costs. Because we need courage. We need courage because we're fighting wolves. Do you see that? Many fierce wolves, not just wolves, but fierce wolves. Are there any other kind? Fierce wolves are coming in, right? He doesn't say, watch out, there's a bunch of puppies coming. These are fierce wolves. Now, now here's the thing. A lot of times the wolves look like puppies, but they're not. I had this, I was visiting uh, uh, some, some folks this week, and I, I went up to their house, and they had one of, these, uh, one of these screen doors, you know, that's metal where you can see out, but you can't really see in you know, the security door kind of thing. And so I kind of get up to the door and I hear, rawr, 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 right, and I hear this really big sounding, angry, upset dog, right? And I'm like just standing there and, and waiting, right? And they get the dog out of the way and they invite me in. And I come in and I'm, and I'm sitting there and we're visiting. And a, a few minutes later, this little tiny dog <laughs> comes up to me and it's like licking my feet and I'm petting it. And I'm like is this the dog that was barking when I walked up? And they're like, no, that's a different dog, we have two. I was like, oh, good, because if that voice came out of that dog, I'm amazed, right? But a lot of times the wolves, they start out as this little puppy, or we think, oh, this person's so slick, or they're so cute, or they're so impressive with their words, or they're charismatic, or they're smart, or they're funny, or they're interesting, but they're wolves. And it takes courage for a leader to see a wolf And to call it out, especially when the wolf is going to be pretty popular at drawing people after themselves. So this takes courage. It takes courage to not shrink back. It takes courage to fight wolves. It also takes courage to face the kind of suffering that Paul's going to face. Look at what he says in verse 22 and following. He says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul goes, I don't know exactly what to expect, but I know it's going to stink. Right? This is like going to the DMV. <laughs> I don't know how it's going to go, but I know it's going to be terrible. He, he's, he says there's suffering, there's imprisonment, there's afflictions. I, I'm facing that. But then I love verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's my mission. That's what I'm about. That's what God's called me to do. I need courage to do that. And I think the elder would have told his wife, honey, there's immense gravity in godly leadership and it requires integrity and it requires courage. But I think he'd tell her, you know, the thing that's weighing on me the most is that it also requires sacrifice. True godly leadership requires sacrifice. Notice the threat of the wolves in verse 29. Look at verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Why? To draw away the disciples after them. In other words, here's the temptation of leadership. The temptation of leadership is to use your platform, to use your influence, to use your persuasiveness, to use the gifts that God has given you to draw people after you instead of point them to Jesus. That's the temptation of leadership. And then the temptation is when it gets difficult and when it gets tough, you say, I'm out of here. Flock, hey, you know what? Not my problem. That's what it is in verse verse 29, not sparing the flock. In other words, when the going gets tough, when the wolf's attacking, he goes, I'm out. This means that godly leadership, and this is one of the things that I think delineates Uh, just the way the world talks about leadership and godly leadership. Godly leadership involves sacrifice, laying your life down for the sheep, not laying their life down for you. And sadly, the history of Israel, the history of the church, we've been plagued by selfish shepherds. This is not a new thing. The prophet said this to Ezekiel, the word of the Lord came to me This is hundreds of years before Jesus, by the way. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness, you have ruled them. See, this isn't a new problem. God, hundreds of years before Jesus, was looking at the leaders. He was looking at the kings. He was looking at the religious class. And he was saying, I've entrusted to you these precious sheep. And instead of feeding them, you're feeding on them. Instead of nurturing them and binding them up and making sure they're cared for, you're using them for your own gain." That's what Paul at the end of this whole passage says that he didn't do. I didn't pursue their gold or their silver or their apparel. You know I wasn't in it for that. But but there's a temptation in leadership to not sacrifice yourself for the sheep, but to sacrifice the sheep for yourself. God says, I'm not having that. And so here's God's answer, actually, in Ezekiel 34. Here's what he says a number of verses later. He says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. God says, listen, you all can't do this. You all aren't good enough leaders. You all aren't sacrificial enough. I'll come which makes the words I'm about to read from John chapter 10, verse 11 from Jesus, puts them in a whole new light, doesn't it? Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, which is Jesus saying, he's the best leader in the world because he is God himself coming to serve, coming to sacrifice, coming to lay his life down, paying his precious blood for his precious church. So if you pray for our leaders, if you pray for the leaders in your life, would you pray that we would have integrity? Would you pray that we'd have courage? And would you pray that we would sacrifice? Because this ultimately points to the third thing that I think the elder would tell his wife is he'd say, "Honey." You know how he finished? He finished reminding us of the core conviction of the Christian life. He finished reminding us of the thing that we just can't ever forget. You know, if I were to sum up the gospel, it'd be this. If I were to sum up the call of the gospel, it'd be this. The core conviction of the Christian life is how Paul finishes. Look at verse 35. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I think that's the core conviction of the Christian life. It's more blessed to give than receive. Jesus gave himself because it's more blessed to give than receive. God so loved the world that he gave and, and this, this word blessed, blessed, it's, it's everywhere you can translate it, happy. <laughs> it's more happy to give than receive. It brings you more joy to give than receive. I think this might be the hardest verse in the Bible to believe. A lot of people go, oh, I don't know if I could believe in a God who just creates everything out of nothing. Like that's really hard to believe. That is hard to believe. People go, man. I just don't know how there could be a, how God could be both good and powerful, but still allow all the sin in the world. That's really hard to believe. That is hard to believe. People go, uh, how is it that God can be one, but also three? Trinity. Like that's hard to believe. I don't know if there's anything harder to believe than this. Do you really think it makes you more happy to give than receive? If we believed that, we'd be so much more generous. But we don't really believe it. We go, well, yeah, you remind your kids of that on Christmas. Hey, remember, it's more blessed to give than receive. And they're like, I know, but I'm still gonna receive. (laughs) And that's how we are. We go, oh yeah, it's more blessed to give as long as I'm receiving too. This is the hardest thing maybe to believe in the Bible. Your life will be better, more joyful, more fulfilled, more meaningful, more blessed. If you give more than you receive. I don't know if I believe that. But it's true. Listen, you're never more like Jesus than when you give and when you serve. Never. Because he's the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. Listen, this is partly why we are constantly encouraging and calling you to serve and to give in the local church. It isn't just because we need volunteers to fill slots, though that's part of it, but it's because you become more like Jesus when you serve instead of just sit. When you give instead of just get, that rhymed, you become more like Jesus and that's what we're about. We're not trying to fill roster slots, whatever. We want you to become like Jesus. We want you to maximize your joy, to maximize your happiness, to live as fulfilled of a life as you can. And the scripture says, Jesus said, that comes through giving yourself. Do you believe it? Will you you give? Will you serve? Will you pour yourself out? Will you not just walk into every room going, do I like this? Do I not like this? How does this speak to me? What do I think? What do I want? but will you serve will you give this is partly what i so love about this church is when we challenge you to give and to serve you do it and i don't think it's mostly because you know you respect me or other leaders i think it's because you love jesus and every now and then we just have to be kind of course corrected we have to go oh yeah 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 oh yeah oh yeah this isn't about me it's about him it's not about me it's about him we just need that and that's what this is and I have total confidence that you will respond to this. I look at how generous we are financially. I look at how generous so many of you are with your time and with your money and with just all the, the talent that God's blessed you with, right? We'll, well, this is good. I love our church because it's more blessed to give than receive. So pray for us as a church along these lines. Pray that we would love the church. Pray that we would be filled with godly leadership and pray that we would believe this core conviction that it's more blessed to give than receive and that we would look to Jesus who exemplified that when he went for you and for me on the cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for how you encourage us and challenge us and strengthen us through your word. God, I, uh, I thank you for Jesus. Oh, what good news that we have a shepherd who laid his life down for us, that no amount of our giving and no amount of our serving and no amount of, of our effort could ever fully and finally please you and pay the guilt that we owe, the shame that we owe because of our sin. Thank you that it took the precious blood of Jesus and that you gave that willingly. And God, I pray that as a response of gratitude and of worship and of joy, that we would follow you in the path of, dying to ourselves and serving one another. Lord, we love you. You're good to us. You are a good shepherd. You lead us beside still waters into the way everlasting. We pray in Christ's name, amen.